The Carlton of recent years has precious little in common with the Carlton of David Mackay's time. Not much more than the logo and a theme song that's rarely heard these days. The modern day blues have won more wooden spoons than finals this century. The blues of Mackay's era won four premierships in 12 years. Welcome David. Thanks Mike. Stark contrast isn't it? It is, it's a very disappointing era for the Blues. It's, uh, we've been down for far too long. And um, I'm not sure what the, what the problem is, but uh, it looks to be a long way off before we'll be back uh, being a successful team again. Have you got any theories? Uh, well, I've always thought that the only way you can um, d develop a team in modern football is develop your own. If you try and buy players from other clubs, all you do is really uh, go backwards, and that's happened to Carlton for far too long. Does it hurt? I mean, when you watch a Carlton perform so dismally, does it hurt or do you just sort of say, well, that's, that's them, this is now and that was then? No, it really hurts because, uh, you know, it's a proud club and to see, to see a team that's not competitive, unfortunately, against uh, the Kangaroos, they were very disappointing. Let's go back to your time with the Blues, but before we do that, I want to know the difference between Mackay, which you are, and McKay, which Andrew McKay was. Well, Mackay is the, the, the proper uh, Scotch pronunciation from the Gaelic... M-A-C-A-O-I-D-H, Monk being son of, and I. So uh, that's uh, why we've always called ourselves Mackays, because we were from the, from the uh, northern part of Scotland. So, Andrew, what's his explanation? Well, I, I think that's a Northern Ireland uh, version of, of the same name, but uh, it's still the same name, but they've all, always pronounced themselves Mackay. As I said earlier, um, if you're writing on the cheque, I don't really worry. <laughs> that's better. <laughs> Side of your humour. <laughs> you were a Premiership player at 20 under Ron Barassi in 1970. What are the memories like? Are they vivid or not? Or are they just they blend into the past? I'm not sure whether my memories are from the day or from watching uh, replays on television, but uh, I, I certainly clearly remember running out onto the ground and the uh, enormous roar uh, when we went through the, uh, you know, went, went down the race. And uh, to play in front of that record crowd, which, are, you know, I think it's a record crowd in... Uh, in VFL finals at the 121,000, yeah. yeah. Only a bigger crowd at the MCG. What was that? Uh, Billy Graham. Billy Graham, well done. <laughs> <laughs> so you played, at the pre in the second semi-final, you played in front of 113,000. I mean, they're massive uh, assemblies of people, aren't they? They are. Uh, it really, well, there was a lot of standing room in those days, so uh, I think modern supporters wouldn't put up with those sort of facilities. But it was, it was just a wonderful occasion, and... Um, I was just so fortunate to play uh, in that game uh, or to play in the grand final in my first really full season and to, um, uh, to, to win and uh, to play reasonably well on the day. Reasonably well. <laughs> do you think you would have, had there been a Norm Smith uh, at that time, do you think you would have won it? Well, Brent Croswell was, was um, pretty much acknowledged as the best player on the ground that day and it wasn't until they did some sort of a review in the, last, uh, in the recent years by people watching the replay, uh, judged um, me as, as the better mm. player on the ground. But look, I, uh, you can't you can't uh, make those sort of judgments yourself. All you know is that you played reasonably well. I was, I was uh, played on Len Thompson, and I was you were centre half back. I was yeah. centre half back on Tomo. We centre half forward, and I was helped by the fact that uh, someone had rubbed, rubbed Tomo's leg during the week and uh, put some uh, nasty liniment on it, <laughs> and he had he had uh, massive boils all down the one side of his thigh. And I was very reluctant to get too close to him. It didn't look too good. So you flew over the top of him? <laughs> well, not really, but he, he still played reasonably well. But uh, that certainly didn't help his, uh, help his day. What are your memories of half-time? The Blues are 44 points down. 
and I, I suspect in most people's minds, we're, we're gone here. Now, I don't know, do you remember what your thoughts were? Uh, well, I thought we were in deep trouble mm. um, because we were playing basically a stop-start game and uh, Brassy talked to us about it. We've got to try and get more run into our game. And handball was obviously one of the key things, the messages he got across. But he finished his address um, at half-time saying, uh, boys, win, lose or draw, um, I'm proud of you. Really? And that was a really, it was a real challenge because that was so un-Barassi-like. And everyone said, everyone, I'm sure you all said it, lose or draw, you've got to be joking. Yeah, yeah. And I think it provided that, that uh, it just put us in the right frame of mind. We went, went out after half-time and uh, had a real crack. So the popular perception is that he went berserk at you blokes and then sort of created this handball as an offensive weapon. Yeah, but I'm, I think it was the lasting message uh, that, he, that was so uncharacteristic of him that, that got to everyone and it really got us going. There was a pretty big mark taken that day. <laughs> Cheselenko, you beauty. You, you have, let's have a look at it. I didn't think he was going to play it, Mike. He was spot on. Okay, to the wing position on the member stand side. Oh, Cheselenko! Now, not only was it a brilliant mark, but you were a torpedo specialist. Do you kick a torp then? That was a torpedo, yes. Yeah. And a, and a very difficult uh, ball to mark. So um, I think uh, I think Jezza once said uh, it was a mongrel upcountry punt and try and say <laughs> that with a few drinks on board and not make a mistake. <laughs> yes, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, in all your career, you had a positive win-loss record against every club bar one. Do you know the one that uh, you're in the negative? Well, it was probably Richmond. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Seventeen ten, which is fairly pronounced, isn't it? Yeah. They they always um, had the wood on us a bit. They always thought we were a bit weak, and they uh, Did they, they? they tried to muscle us out of it. Mm. I think there were a couple of people behind the scenes there that uh, used to feed them feed them on that. I think one it was of, one, one of the initials G R. <laughs> <laughs> Graham Richmond, yes. And yeah. uh, and they used to send people out to, uh, to to basically knock us around a little bit. Well, talking about that. You suffered a broken jaw in the 72 grand final, correct? Ten minutes into the second quarter, yeah. yeah. And Jeff Southby, was, did you have a broken jaw or did you just get uh, concussed? He in, was concussed, yeah. In hit. the 73 grand final. Yeah. Neil Baum was involved in both those incidents. That's correct. Yeah. Have you moved on from that? Uh, yes, except I've, I've still got dental issues that I'm uh, having treatment for, but yeah, other than that, it's, uh, I've moved on. So you've still got dental issues? You, yeah. So but but I, I, must, I must say, uh, the uh, AFL Players Association, uh, of which I was part of in its original formation, uh, are fantastic the way they do support older players like mm. myself. And, uh, you know, if there's a gap in, in the uh, payments that you've got to have to have any sort of medical procedure that's related to your football career, they'll make up the difference, and that's really fantastic. So your break was where? Between uh, my front teeth and to the side. Wow. And did you lose any teeth? Not at the time. Uh, but it, it took a while for my jaw to heal. Mm. Did you, were you a long time um, accepting or coming to terms with Barmy as a, as a colleague on the ABC radio? Uh, I thought it might be difficult initially, but, you know, we had a chat and uh, uh, we got on pretty well. So, uh, you know, those, those things, I don't, I don't condone that sort of behaviour in football. I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a game where the ball is the most, is paramount and uh, to hit people behind the play is a pretty... Uh, pretty insidious sort of thing to happen. Um, and fortunately these days with cameras it doesn't really happen much anymore, but you know, it was pretty tough and rough at the early part of the, mm. the, the late 60s, early 70s, and that's, uh, that sort of thing was, 
not rife, but it was. Uh, it did happen. Was it scary? I don't mean that that you would be scared or Jeff Southby, but was it scary knowing that uh, Richmond were intent on, to use your words, roughing you up? Uh, it it probably yeah. No, it was. People are scared, of course, you know, you can get damaged. You see what happened to Liam Jones, even though it was an innocuous incident. Mm. You know, you can get badly hurt playing football. That um, 72 incident, at the end of the game, you've won the flag. Did Vinnie Waite go off about the same time you went off? He went off at half-time, mm. and I went to the doctor and said, I think my jaw's broken, it was hanging down here. And he said, he said yes, but uh, Vin's got a broken ankle, so you better stay on. And it was quite incredible because it was, I think it was in the third quarter, uh, down, down the city end of the ground, I sort of half went for a mark and I put my, my knee up in the air. Royce Hart got under me, under my knee, pushed me straight up in the air and I took the most photographed mark of my career than it was one I at least wanted to take. Because yeah. when I came down I was really more worried about holding my jaw. Gee. How was Vinny after the game? Was he, he in hospital? He was, he, was, he was okay. And I was, I was drinking soup through a straw. <laughs> you were telling Vinny was doing the huckleback, was he? <laughs> <laughs> Barass, tell me a little bit, but we're always fascinated with the, the Brassy behind the scenes. How did you rate him as a coach? I thought he was an outstanding coach. He just had the ability to uh, motivate players with different personalities. And the way he conducted training, it was, uh, it was, everything was, um, was based on you know, improving players' skills. And he was a great one for um, for skills and, and manufacturing games that uh, maximised the skills of the players he had under his charge. I just thought he was a he was great. He, he was great for a whole range of reasons. Uh, the club was an exciting place to be when he was around. If there were any entertainers in Melbourne? They were always in the club rooms. Uh, he was a he was a, you know that that sort of character that. Um, just got people interested in football and uh, got people interested in Carlton. I think he was probably the, the most influential person that Carlton's ever had. Mm. We're well, talking about that. John, John Nichols was another one. Brent Croswell was a brilliant player. We all acknowledge how good Tiger was. Was there one of the, your teammates that stood out to you in terms of their ability to play this game? Well, obviously, Jezza was, um, yeah. was an outstanding player. Like he, he was just uh, great at everything, a good mark as we've seen, uh, uh, a great ball player on the ground. He introduced the push-off, uh, first time I ever saw that used effectively when players would tackle him. His hand would come out and hit, hit the opponent in the chest, take them out of the contest. He That's was, the Dusty Martin one? Dusty Martin one. Yeah. He was doing that way back in uh, probably uh, you know, the mid-70s. Were you sad when Jezza took off and went to St Kilda? Oh, absolutely. You know, he, he should have finished his career at Carlton. It was just a bit unfortunate that he backed George Harris and uh, ha George Harris wanted to take control of the club at the time and uh, that didn't work out for George. And um, unfortunately, Jezza had tied himself to George so much so that he uh, didn't think he could stay at Carlton. But he's still a Carlton person and always yeah. will be, even though he, you know, he did well at St Kilda. Your first game, Swan, happened to be at the Western Oval, the home of Ted Whitten, and you played on Ted Whitten. And you were 19. I was only 19, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and any lessons from uh, lining up on the great EJ? Well, I must admit, I, I was expecting to be uh, getting, a, getting a bit of a welcome to football with a, a whack around the ears, but he was, uh, he was terrific. He, uh, he was near the end of his career. He didn't get many kicks and I didn't get many either. So, uh, But from then on, I really admired Ted Whitten. I thought he was a terrific fellow and I got to know him much better later on in the media. And in fact, um, he used to bring... Tommy Hafey and I pies from Sid's Pies in Footscray. <laughs> so he was a good friend and uh, yeah. it was sad to see his early passing. Did you learn anything from him? Well, I, I, 
I just knew that he was Mr. Football, so yeah. to me it was the biggest thrill just to play on someone yeah. like that. Uh, and I think all you've, do, all you've got to do is make, uh, make the ball your object, and that's the, the most important thing you learn in football. You finished in 81, you won a, your fourth flag in 1981 and then hung up the boots. Your call? It was my call, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the motivation? Um, well, I, I struggled uh, in the last year of football in 81 to... Uh, I, I, I used to think that I was in position where I could take marks and uh, everything was right, but uh, people were taking marks over me because I'd lost the spring that I had. My ankles were, were just about finished and... Um, uh, it really worried me before games. I couldn't sleep before games. Um, well, for fear of, of, of not playing up to your capabilities. Not playing up to your capabilities or not being able to, you know, do the things that you uh, really wanted to do uh, and, and were confident in doing. And it, that, that really hurts. And uh, when the end of the season came, uh, to, to uh, actually to run down the, down the race at the end, winning a premiership, going out like that was fantastic, but I knew uh, my time was over. Mm. Notwithstanding the fact that you're in your 70th year, the Mackay that I remember as a footballer could have played today. I mean, you were, you were an outstanding athlete, had a great leap, clean mark and, and a booming kick. I mean, you, you were a very good player. I, I spoke to Sam Newman this week and asked him for a critique of uh, David Mackay. Now, normally Sam would say, who? <laughs> Who did he play for? But he said, excellent player and had the utmost respect for you. Yeah, well, he's, he's a good fellow, Sam. Um, I think I played my 250th game on him and I did my ankle quite severely. And uh, that next week, he uh, said, come down to, um, to Geelong. We've got a, a new way of strapping ankles. And uh, uh, the trainer there, I'm trying to remember his name, George, he was a fantastic guy and they were using a, a specific type of tape and I think uh, Sam Newman had had the um, uh, his his he advice. He had ankle problems. Didn't he had he? ankle problems, yeah. and they used this muslin tape. And I think it extended my career from uh, from that time on to '81. Yeah. So I've I've got a, a big debt to owe to Sam Newman. Was that George Clark? I think it was George Clark. Yeah, he was a yeah. fantastic co- uh, old trainer. He was a terrific man. That, that is Sam, though, isn't it? I mean, he was yeah. even though you were from the opposition, if he could help, it was sort of the kindred spirit that you had as footballers. Yeah, and. I think it's fantastic. Look, I get that support now from other from other players that were foes. People like Don Scott keeps mm. in touch with me regularly. I think uh, it's fantastic the support those guys uh, they, those guys give you, and it's uh, you've got sort of a it's a coterie or it's a, an yep. understanding, yep. and uh, and you can talk about any issues whether they be football related, politics or or whatever, and you, you do it with uh, with confidence, knowing that uh, you're talking to a real friend. You were a political beast, Swan, weren't you? <laughs> Not really, but I... But you, well, you, were, you, were, you were socialist. You were, I thought you were vocal for your time. Footballers didn't tend to get involved in politics. Uh, well, I was, I was interested in a, in a fair go, I think, uh, and a fair go for footballers, and that's why I was involved initially with the Victorian VFLPA, now, now the AFLPA, and uh, with players like Jeff Pryor and uh, Des Maher and Ray Gareth Smith. Andrews. Gareth was later, but yeah. initially it was uh, was pretty much uh, Jeff Pryor and um, Desmar and Ray Smith. And Jeff and I were probably the more radical, but we mm. were fortunate we had blokes like Desmar who uh, kept <laughs> kept us pretty much on track. But uh, we had there were some interesting times because uh, you know there were no standard play, player contracts, uh, there were no no medical benefits. Um, we didn't have parking. We didn't mm. have uh, creches for kids. Uh, there were a whole lot of issues that. Um, uh, that we were worried about, and obviously superannuation was one of those. But it was making sure that all players got a, a reasonable amount of money. Contracts were negotiated 
individually, but there were, there were actually deals were negotiated individually, but there were no contracts. So, um, you know, we just wanted to have a fair go for all players. So do you remember back, say, to 1981, your last year, who you did your contract negotiations with and what they ended up being? Well, I remember it wasn't with uh, Jack Rout, but I did speak to Jack about a contract once and he said, Macca, remember, the contract would be just as hard on you as it is on us. And I mm. said, I'm happy with a handshake, Jack. <laughs> so I never had a contract for my whole career. So you didn't? Okay. No. Do you remember your last um, annual pay? Yes. Which was? 16000 for, uh, and I played 16 games. 16000 So was it at a rate of 1000 a game or was that the flat fee? Uh, I think it was a, a rate of a thousand a game. Yeah, in 1981, which is more than I got for most of the rest of my career. Was it? So you thought that was fair then? It was fair for sure. Yeah. What do you think when you when you read these days of um, so many players, certainly in the range of 800 to a million, and probably a dozen or so that are a million plus? Well, I think good luck to them. You know, it's a it's a different game now to what uh, when we played. Obviously, the the um, exposure they get through t through television and um, sponsorship and all, all those sort of things that are a much, a much bigger fish than they were in my day. Do you like the modern game? Uh, I, don't, I don't like some of the new rules. I don't like the fact that people can push, push uh, players out and take a mark and it be paid to the bloke that pushes out. I think that's a ridiculous rule. Wasn't that in play though before that brief rule of hands on the back? Well I think hands on the back should, should still be there. I, I Even if you don't push someone? You shouldn't be able to use your hands to uh, hold out an opponent, in my view. You can use your body, but not your hands. So you, you were a flyer, weren't you? You, yeah. didn't, you weren't a body player as such, were you? Not really, no. Huh. John Nichols used to create the space and I used to <laughs> jump into it. <laughs>
we became firm friends and he was actually the goal umpire the day that he reported Neil Barn for striking me in oh, uh, really? 1972. Yeah. Tommy Roster, a, a wonderful fellow. What, what did Barnby get? Um, four weeks. Four weeks. Mm. Swan, did you rail against the corporate image at Carlton? Um, well, I, I, I railed against the fact that um, Jack Rad always said to me, and I think uh, the club is bigger than the individual. And it wasn't the corporate image, but it was when uh, individuals, and you know, I probably blame John Elliott to a little, a little degree on that. I think it's, at times he got a bit bigger than he thought the club, he was bigger than the club. And that was away from, away from my football beliefs because the club was always paramount. It was the most important thing. Uh, but having talked to John since, look, his heart's always been in the right place. He's always been a Carlton person. But I think at, at, for a little while there, he uh, got a little bit carried away with that. Uh, you didn't get on power. with him, though, did you? Not then, but I do now. Oh. I just spoke to him at a life member's function a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Did he um, accept your argument? Was he open to that? Probably not, but, uh, you know, he had his views. He's a very strong character and... Uh, Look, he did, he did a great job for the club uh, for the time he was there. Okay. A couple of things. I want to ask you about the, the nickname Swan. Now, most people think it was because you were so graceful in the air and on the ground. My understanding is it came from Ricky McLean, who said one night at training, you look like, you look like a chook with a broomstick up its clacker. I think we'll call you Swan. Unfortunately, that's true. I'd like to be, <laughs> I'd like to be remembered more as a graceful high flyer, but... Uh, <laughs> The truth is there, Ricky McLean, he had a, yeah, had a bit of a strange wit at times. Mm. I bet you were glad you played with him. The silliest thing Carlton ever did was clearing him into Richmond. Really? Oh, it was crazy. Because he'd played pretty well in the pre-season. He kicked, I think he kicked about six goals in a practice match. And why they let him go uh, was just beyond, beyond my belief. Because he was a pretty good player and he was a, a booming uh, torpedo kick for goal. Uh, and a tough guy and he would have been handy for us. I think a lot of players ran taller when they were in the vicinity of Ricky McLean, didn't they? I'm, I'm sure they did. Mm. He had the ability to uh, grab you in a headlock and run you into the post <laughs> head first. <laughs> Luckily, they were padded. Who were you, who were you playing with, Carlton? Or, or was it when, he was, when he was at Carlton or Richmond? When he was at Richmond. <laughs> oh, yeah. What about when Barm and McLean played in the same line? Yes. <laughs> Jeez, he would have, they would have unnerved a few people. They did. Yeah. You? All players in the vicinity. <laughs> now, you, you, um, you went under the Carlton board early 2000s. Yeah. Was that, it was just after John left, wasn't it? John it was, left? It was, uh, was that deliberate? Uh, yeah, it was a changing of the guard. We, uh, we put together a team to uh, basically try and bring back some of the ideals of Carlton that, that I thought were missing. And uh, uh, Ian Collins uh, and his board were, uh, were put into place. The problem is we inherited a basket case. Financially, the club was in deep trouble. In fact, uh, Bruce Matherson um, mentioned on a few occasions, let's hand the keys back to the AFL and let them really? take it over. They've left us with an absolute debacle. And th the three years I was on the board were really frustrating because we couldn't really concentrate on the sort of strategic uh, side of football, trying to get the club back on track because we were just so financially uh, bereft. Mm. And all of our board meetings were pretty much about how to, how to generate funds and save funds. So it was we, really frustrating. Was it that serious? That oh, it, was, it was absolutely serious. We were close to uh, being insolvent. Mm. In fact, we would have been insolvent had not the a AFL given us a letter of, letter of comfort uh, saying that they'd meet our debts if we couldn't. Isn't it amazing how, how strong the Blues were in the 70s and 80s? Yeah. And yet 
10 and 15 years later, yeah, look, you're few, on the brink. A few bad decisions about um, developments at the ground that um, just didn't work out and the fact that games were taken away from the ground, uh, all of those things had a massive impact on the club. You know, I think, I think the, the original plans were for the club to uh, keep playing games at Carlton for as long as they could, in fact, playing there, playing there forever. Uh, but that wasn't in the AFL plans and uh, that really put Carlton under the hammer. Do you think grounds like Princess Park and, and the form they were in when you were playing, could they still exist? Could, you, could we play home games at Princess Park and Western Oval and Victoria Park against the non-Victorian teams? Um, it's possible. Uh, I know that Bill Kelty was always very keen when he was on the commission to have Carlton as a, as a boutique ground. Um, and particularly there was, a, there was an old rail spur that ran at the back of the ground that would allow uh, a train, train line to be mm. um, perhaps uh, put in place. Pretty hard to get train lines in this state, Absolutely. David. It's difficult yeah. to get train lines in. You can't get them into the airport, so yeah. not much chance of getting one to the back of the Carlton ground. The behaviour off the ground of the Carlton players of your era and probably the year immediately after is legend. Were they as wild as we're led to believe? Well, look, they were, they were guys that played hard uh, on the ground and they played pretty hard off the ground. You know, you can't deny the fact that Val Perfect uh, consumed a massive amount of cans at, uh, at a uh, pub in South Melbourne. But look, uh, they were terrific guys and uh, they, they looked after themselves. Well, they had a big night on Saturday night, but after that it was back to business. Mm -hmm. And uh, look, just an interesting time, interesting guys. It was all so, part of the characters. So, well, so, so they knew not to cross the line. They, they, they probably did cross the line, didn't they? Well, probably on a, on a few occasions, and no, but th there was a pretty strong peer group pressure at Carlton that if players didn't do the right thing, they were made. It wasn't didn't necessarily need to be the administration of the club telling mm. them. Their teammates would tell them, "Look, mate, if you're not serious about this club, uh, you know, find somewhere else." Okay. And that was players telling players, not not the club telling players. You've thrown Pera under the bus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> must, he must have had two or three uh, accomplices. But just getting back to Perra, he was an incredible individual. He could, he could drink, you know, on Saturday nights he could drink and he used to sleep in his panel van outside the club. He would get up, <laughs> this, is, this is a case in point, he would get up on a Sunday morning and win the run around the, uh, around the park and quite often they were, they were more than just the park. So uh, not only did he have the ability to consume a large amount of stuff, but he, was, he had an incredible um, constitution that allowed him to get back on track from Sunday morning on. Mark McClure, was he of a similar mind to Perra? Uh, no, look, it, it, McClure took his game very seriously. He, he certainly enjoyed a good time on a Saturday night, but uh, come, the, um, come the business end of the, the, the week, he was right back in business. And he worked really hard on his game. He's one of the few, well, probably the centre-half forward that covered more territory. He, he used to run his uh, opponents ragged, mm. and then he'd get back into position. At the right time, he was able to read the play well. Uh, he, he was a good mark for his size and, uh, and a good kick for goal. When you finished football, Swan, you joined the Department of Overseas Trade. Uh, you also had a role with Lindsay Fox and Bill Kelty, trying to create jobs around Australia. Yeah, that was probably one of the most rewarding jobs that I ever had, Mike, um, working with Lindsay Fox and Bill Kelty. I was actually working with uh, Department of Employment then. And... Um, Fox and Kelty had, uh, had a, well, I think Lindsay unfortunately lost a son and Bill mm. gave him some solace and uh, just together they, they decided they'd try and do something for the country. And uh, they started this, in, in a sense it was an, an evangelistic crusade around Australia to create jobs for young people. 
and affect their, uh, their message to local communities uh, in talks that we used to have uh, organised right across the country was uh, if, you, if your young people in this community don't have a future, your community doesn't have a future. Mm. So do something about it. And as a result of that, uh, in communities across Australia, I think somewhere between 50 and 70,000 new jobs were created. Oh. And it was, uh, it was a wonderful time. Uh, they had full support of the government and I was representing the government or the Commonwealth Employment Service and they provided the backup in um, finding people for the jobs that uh, Fox and Kelly created. But it was a wonderful time and uh, they did a wonderful job for Australia. So it's a great career. Um, I think you're often underplayed in your terms of your influence on the, the blues sides of the 70s and early 80s. You'd be very proud of it. Great to catch up and reflect on what was a much better period for the blues. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure. This has been a Fox Sports production.